Welcome to Books, Stories, People, with me, Nancy Richards. Coinciding with lockdown in South Africa back in March 2020 was the launch of Daily Maverick's Don't Shoot the Messenger, a podcast recognised by Apple as one of its eight biggest new shows in South Africa. It was designed to be what producer Haji Mohamed Dauji, columnist and author of Sorry Not Sorry, describes as a slick, sexily produced product that could be held to international standards. And as host Rebecca Davis, Daily Maverick journalist and author of Self Helpless, says was an opportunity in as much as they had a captive audience. Well, over a year down the line, DSTM, as it's fondly abbreviated, has had a bit of a rethink, and for its third season, it's looking at solutions-based journalism, addressing some of South Africa's most enduring problems, crime, poverty, education, etc., taking cues from other parts of the world. But reading back, why and how did Messenger start? Well, in the beginning, um, Nancy, I wasn't actually involved. Beck had come home with a, I guess, sort of a sample podcast of what, you know, what they were trying to do. It didn't really have a title yet. It was just a pilot, as one would say. And she asked me for my opinion. Hmm. And, you know, it just sounded like, something you would hear on the radio, like a like a Cape Talk type of interview. There was no real production. Um, there was no real storytelling. Um, and I think, you know, what you want to do with a podcast is you want to bring people into your, like a lounge or, you know, around a dinner table and you want to feel, make them feel like, like they're part of the, the conversation. And also you want to give them a listening experience and take them on a journey. And I always say, you know, the production is the, the third or fourth character of a of a podcast much like a, a score to a film you know it's it's there and it's carrying everything forward and so Beg said you know I'll do this if you produce it and I, I went in um with a pitch and with a title and I said guys look podcast is narrative storytelling in terms of what we want to do and if we want to stand out we got to do a b and c and yeah we just you know we just took it from there absolutely I can hear the beginning bit there Rebecca, just looking at the whole podcast scenario at the time, how podcast au fait were you? Because in America and in, in the UK, podcasts are huge, far less so here in South Africa. How au fait were you with the whole medium? I was, I'd say, an average adopter. Not a particularly early adopter, but not too bad. Serial really was my gateway podcast, as it is for many people. Serial was the first podcast I can remember engaging with in that kind of binging way. My issue with podcasts, Nancy, was always that I didn't understand what you were supposed to do while you were listening to them. I, I sort of was stuck in a kind of, I suppose, I don't know, a radio mindset or something. And then when I realized I could put them on and sort of clean or take a walk, etc., which is staggeringly obvious, but hadn't occurred to me, then it sort of opened up the whole universe of podcasts for me. And since then, I've become an absolute podcast fiend. I mean, now I look forward to individual podcasts in the same way that I would, you know, the launch of a new TV series or something like that. So I would say for me, it has certainly become one of my major forms of cultural consumption. Yes, I think the only thing with doing other things that one can, if one's cooking or ironing or even in the car, you can get a bit distracted by other things. I find that I sometimes have to rhyme back on the podcast. So I, what was that bit that I missed? So the competition has subsequently, since March 2020, has subsequently become fierce because po- people are podcasting left, right and centre as a result of the pandemic. Haji, how did you see that Messenger was going to be different from all the rest? 
Well, I mean, unlike Beck, I was very lucky to work in an American school for five years. Um, and at that time, This American Life, produced by Ira Glass and also presented by him, was very big in the U.S. So I had lots of colleagues coming to me and saying, you know, listen to this. And what they used to do is they used to re release annual um, CDs with their episodes. And so I had people from the U.S. giving this to me. And so I guess, you know, I was kind of like an early adopter and I had experience in history of how listening works and how storytelling works and how they did different things. And obviously their resources are are massive. Mm. So one of the challenges for me was to create a product that could stand up against this in terms of an, an international standard with less resources, but very good resources. You know, people who are excellent at doing what they're doing. Beck is a great writer. I'm sort of an average or good writer. And you know, we work well together. We've done projects before. And then obviously we've got Tavia Shapiro and Tavia Turok Shapiro, that is, sorry, and Bernard Kotzer, who are both great engineers and, and sound mixers and kind of speak my language in terms of production notes. So it all comes together. And I didn't want to do what South Africa is trying to do with podcasting because I don't think they really understand. I mean, I'm sure they understand what it is. It's just different. You know, I, I wanted to do something that was an international standard. And I always say I need don't treat the mess messenger to be so sexy that you want to be able to lick it. And I feel like that's always <laughs> the standard that I'm going. What gives yours its lickability is the music and the sound design that you've described. I think the guys are doing that, uh, Bernard and Tevia. How have you chosen the music? Because the music is incredibly evocative and pertinent to whatever the content is. How do you go around the music selection? Well, I think we, you know, our team is particularly gifted because I have a degree, a BMAS undergrad degree in music, and Bernard, I think, has a degree in music as well. So what tends to happen is, you know, once I've listened to your conversation, the audio, and once I've gone through the script and we've got the storytelling right, I always build sort of from there. And, it, you know, it depends on the theme of the story, but it also depends on the sources because sometimes you've got to lift them or drop them with the energy of the music. And, and that's how I go about choosing it. And it's very, you know, it's not just about plugging in a song as a background or an underscore for a show. It's about using cadences and, and fade-ins and fade-outs and decrescendos and all kinds of things um, to build certain points of the story, to, to sort of lift them and drop them and conclude them and that kind of thing. So all those are, are chosen, selected, put into the production notes and then sent off to, to Tev, who sort of does a, a draft mix and then Bernard sort of does the final touches. And obviously for this episode, uh, for this season, sorry, which is our third season, what we try to do is again, take it, you know, challenge ourselves and take it a step further and do original compositions. And how that works is I take a, a sample of something that might work, or I take, you know, an inspiration from somewhere else, a really excellent composition. Um, and I say to Bernard, I need this, you know, sort of in a sonata form. I need a, a beginning, I need a transposition, I need a theme and variation, and I need a coda, and I need it to be two minutes so that I have something to work with, and then we take it from there. You know, as you describe, it's almost like creating a mini-movie in a very short period of time, because, you know, I think people don't appreciate just how long it takes to craft such a product. How long does it take per episode? Our team is so small... And I think, you know, this American life sometimes and other internet sometimes 
three months. Yeah, sometimes two to three months. And we are doing weekly podcasts. And for the first two seasons, we were literally churning them out in a week. And this includes, you know, interviewing, first of all, sourcing sources, interviewing sources, scrubbing and cleaning audio in terms of, you know, their quotes and what they're saying and fine-tuning all of that, scripting, signing off on scripting, production notes, music, etc. Um, and we were doing all of this in a week. And by the time we got now to the third season, we decided, look, because of the original scoring, and like you say, it is, it is like scoring a film, we need to work two weeks in advance. So, yeah, that's basically the time frame. It's, it's two weeks for a weekly show. It's epic. I'm sure you deserve an Oscar if there were a podcasting Oscar, just putting it together. But, we, you know, we're talking about... Yeah, look, it's hard work and it, and it does take a lot of time and a lot of thinking and a lot of sort of managing a lot of people and a lot of signing off. Yeah. So, but it's worth it. Yeah. So, I mean, completely. So that's the, the recipe, the strategy that, that, you know, the compiling the whole, putting the whole thing together. But I suppose the, one of the most important things is the theme, the content. How do you go about choosing that? Because we have a world of stuff going on right here in South Africa, never mind the rest of the world. And you certainly are looking at the rest of the world. How do you hit on, okay, this is the next one? Um, I think the most important thing for us is to, you know, to sort of think as a team, so Bernard Tev and Kath are not journalists, but they are sort of a target audience in that they intelligent, they're interested in the world, etc. And then obviously Beck and I are writers and journalists, so we have a good idea of storytelling, what's newsworthy, but also things that are that are evergreen. And you know, our focus is not to do breaking news. And if we do breaking news, it is to sort of do analysis and something sort of that goes beyond just what's happening right now in terms of breaking news. Um, for the first season, I guess it was obviously COVID themed because that's what was happening in the world. And it handed, you know, the, the, the story was sort of handed to us on a silver platter, but we broke it out uh, down episode by episode by going slightly sort of left field and just a little bit off center. So instead of telling people what COVID was and how it was affecting the world, for example, we spoke to someone who was in Italy at the moment that it was that Italy was, you know, sort of the hotspot and yeah. he was stuck there and he was an academic, he was a great storyteller. So we're always looking for sites that you won't find, you know, on radio or on a regular talk show, on a regular news podcast. Um, we're always looking for things again, that are just like a bit more creative, a little bit off-center. And that's just really good, instead of reporting, just really good narrative storytelling. The second season, what we thought about was, you know, Beck and I sat and we brainstormed and we said, look, we're podcast listeners. What are the kinds of things that we listen to and what are the kinds of things we skip through? And we just, you know, adopted stories that hadn't been told before, like the Kuba bombings, for example, which did extremely well. And these weren't naturally stories that were, you know, told in South Africa, especially not in an interesting audio way, like a mini film for the ears, you know. Uh, and we just thought these are interesting things and this is what we want to listen to. And that's how we, we conceptualized the second season. And the season was actually, um, again, another umbrella sort of blanketed theme. 
which Beck felt very strongly about in terms of solution-based journalism. So I think I'm going to hand over to her here in terms of digging into that a little bit. Yes, yes. So Nancy, in general terms, I would say what the kind of content we want is that we never want it to sound like 20 minutes of talk radio. That's our basic our basic mantra, that it shouldn't be something you can turn on to clip, clip talk and hear the same thing as in just, you know, an interview with someone who's in the news at the moment. No disrespect to Cape talk. My goodness, I'm also on Cape talk. <laughs> you, Nancy, have a long and storied history in talk radio as well. And, you know, they do a fantastic job. We just mean that we want podcasts to be uniquely its own thing. And what it does offer us is an alternative kind of theatre for storytelling for the year. And we haven't even yet begun to scratch the possibilities of the medium, honestly, as a podcast. And that's partly because we just don't have the time and resources. And because of COVID, we haven't been able to really get out there and do as much sound capturing as we'd like. So that's the basic thing. In terms of this season, in Daily Maverick as a whole, we've been getting more interested in solutions-based journalism, our kind of social journalism, sorry, social, what do you call it? Social justice arm, Maverick Citizen in particular. It tells a lot of stories where we don't just report on what's gone wrong, but we also give information about how readers can actually help to support the situation. And in a similar vein, because, you know, we get a lot of feedback, and I'm sure you do too, from consumers of news, consumers of Daily Maverick, who say, we love your stuff, but we are so overwhelmed by the bad news. We can't take it anymore. And it does cause people, I think, to, to turn off a little bit. There's this kind of bad news fatigue. So I thought it would be an interesting experiment for us as well, just to look at solutions rather than problems. I mean, for me, I'm, you know, by nature, more of a critic than a builder, I suppose. So I also wanted to look into, force myself to look into positive stories rather than negative ones. And, you know, we have been so impressed by the stories we've come up with all over the country of people doing awesome stuff, often without recognition, to try and make things better, even if at a very small scale. Yeah. Sorry, I have to just add, Nancy, that we were also like, I was specifically skeptical about this, you know, umbrella, this blanketed theme being sort of, I guess, motivational and listeners feeling like we were telling them what to do or giving them fixed solutions and being spokespeople for that kind of thing. So, you know, I am and I was still wary of sort of veering away from those kinds of, you know, advice-based journalism, I guess, if you want to call it it advice-based storytelling. Um, And this is why we're always reaching out to international sources, international places where people have also had struggles, but have used interventions to get them right. And then coming back to South Africa and contextualizing it and saying, look, but these aren't the only countries that are trying. There are success stories here as well. And we're not telling you that this is the formula, this is how it works. We're just telling the story. We're letting these people rather tell the story of how they've made it work. Yeah, this is what worked for us. You know, as you describe the content and the and the compilation, etc., all I can think of is a whack of a lot of research has to go into this. I mean, you talk about the Italian chap who was a very good storyteller. You don't have many resources. So where and how do you go about the research? Because to to ferret out, to sniff out the people who are going to tell a story, um, firstly, in a, in a way that's, uh, you know, articulate, but secondly, people who've got the story, how do you find them? Have you got moles or are you doing all the research yourselves? Um, I, you know, funny thing is you have to know what to ask Google, I think, <laughs> in order to get the answers that you're looking for. But more than that, I mean, we read absolutely everything. You know, we, we're 
both avid fans of the New Yorker. Uh, we read the New York Times, the Washington Post. There's lots of research papers and academic papers that I go through and, you know, I send to Beck and I say, read this. Um, is there something we can work through the story in for this? Um, one of my favorite episodes for this season was the thing that we did about statues, because we know that, you know, the roads must fall thing and the falling of statues thing is quite a big deal in South Africa. And I specifically have always been of the opinion that they should come down, but we can't get rid of them because that's getting rid of research and history mm. that we should be made aware of. And, you know, just through lots and lots of research, I found, I thought, you know, Germany was the best place to go because where else has there been this mass genocide and, and these mass iconoclastic reminders of these things and what have they done with it? And I ended up finding a curator in, in Germany at the Citadel who gave us this great story of what they do with these things. And it's amazing because they put them in a place where they're on display, but they don't refurbish them or fix them. It's just as they are. Kids are allowed to climb all over them. But also it's a place for discussion and discourse. And that was really interesting to me. So, I mean, you know, you always feel like these international sources are bigger than what we are in South Africa and so much more important and so busy and et cetera. But I, I always feel like the, the worst thing they can say is no. And so far, we've never had that. Everyone has been extremely nice and accommodating. Mm. Mm. I seem to remember on the subject of statues, I seem to remember when all the, when the, you know, democracy came, I think all those portraits of apartheid leaders from parliament were, it was said that they were going to be all sent to Robin Island, which seemed like such a fitting place for them all to be. <laughs> <laughs> but Rebecca, you know, you've got the voice, you've also got the words, you're the, you're the, the voice behind it all. I'm also the face, don't forget about the face. And the <laughs> face, what would we do without that lovely face? But I'm thinking, you know, so you are the, the face of it. But, um, you know, to an extent, I'm wondering, what I'm really wondering is, to what extent do you have to script it? But really, you're also working with other people's words. So you gather together all your little pearls, all your, um, your recorded bits, and then you have to work around it. Do you have an agenda when you know that you're going to work, say the statue story, you want to have certain things, and then the outcome, and then it's, you know, the beginning, the middle, and the end? To what extent do you have to sort of work with the material that they've given you and then put it together? Does that make sense? Yes, completely. It can be difficult because often people do very interesting work and are no doubt very interesting people, but perhaps are not the best at verbalizing that in the most intriguing way. I'm being polite now and saying that sometimes people can sound very boring or can sound you know, they can not do a good job of making their own work sound interesting, even though it is. So then you have to find ways of kind of scripting around them to let their work kind of shine through and to give them props for what they do. I tend to approach a script as I would a feature story, which is to say I scripted, and I have no previous experience in scripting, Nancy. I haven't written for TV or radio or anything like that. So I was going into this blind as well. I tend to script it as I would a feature story. So I approach it in the same way that I would there in terms of providing context and bringing in voices, etc., and just try not to get too freaked out by the thought that eventually I will be reading these words, which does, of course, add a certain intimidation factor, doesn't it? Because if you write a feature story, even if you have a few lines that are a bit weak, you just send it off into the ether and you never have to consider, you know, 
the reception, so to speak, here you're reading your actual lines. And so if anything kind of bombs a bit in delivery, it's entirely your fault. And of course, I do get help as well from Haji. She gives input into scripting as well. So that's great. While we're talking about the ether and reception, I suppose one of the most important ingredients of a podcast is the listener. And you mentioned that you quite, uh, you know, you're getting quite a lot of feedback and you, uh, you invite it. I mean, This American Life is held up as the gold standard. You know, it was where it all began. Well, certainly one of the places where it all began. To what extent do you think are South Africans taking on the podcast? I mean, do you know who your listeners are and in what quantity? Let's start with the statistics. Uh, we do have a very good idea. I think, you know, on the on the first one or two days, we get about our average is three to five thousand listens. And obviously we have, you know, a, an, an analytics thing that sort of shows us where our listens come from. And depending on the topic and, and the sources, of course, our listens do tend to come from all over the world, like sometimes from the UK, from the US. I think last season particularly did very well, where we sort of overtook lots of episodes of this American Life and New York Times podcast in South Africa. In mm. yeah, in in South African statistics, as having more more listens than them, you know, for episodes. This season, we've grown our South African audience quite exponentially, purely because I think the themes are more South African centric, so to speak. But from our, I mean, we can tell from our, our reviews, the kind of feedback we get, the kind of questions we sometimes get exactly who our listeners are, what they're interested in. And obviously, they are themselves avid podcast listeners. So we always get to know, um, they always share what else they listen to, um, what they think of the production. And, you know, comparatively speaking, how we're doing. And and we always use that as as a benchmark of how to move forward and what our new challenges are. Um, I'm just going to take issue with a bit of that, Nancy. Podcasting in South Africa is still a little bit of a mystery in some ways, as in the analytics are actually very hard to get hold of. You know, a lot of it does feel a bit like punting a ball into space and just hoping something comes back. And, you know, it, it, even the, the way the charts are made up on the Apple charts, etc., entirely mysterious. We're not, and nobody seems to know exactly how those are formed, etc. So there is a lot that's still not clear. So I should say that it is not the case that we are able to make assumptions about our audience in the way that we are from, you know, online publications and stuff like that. There's still a lot that that's unknown. And if you look at the composition of the charts in South Africa, I think you'll see that kind of ambivalence very clearly reflected in the vast diversity of things that do make the charts, you know, from I'm a piano mixes to kind of serious political discussions to religious stuff to... I suppose, news kind of variety shows like ours. So it's, it's not the case that there is one kind of a podcast listener in South Africa at the moment. I think that audience is, is building by the day and it is as diverse as the South African population, for sure. Though by definition, you might make some assumptions, for instance, that they people do tend to be perhaps a little richer because they have data, you know, they are aware of the technologies, etc. But other than that, it is impossible to make sweeping statements about who they are. Yeah, yeah I, I think... In general, Apple mostly is is a bit of a mystery because, I mean, the assumption has always been, and for me it still is, that the most access to podcasts comes from from Apple Podcasts. Obviously, Spotify is is rising now as well. But there is no no formula for Apple's analytics, or at least, you know, there's no access to it and they don't share it. So it is it does seem, you know, quite quite randomized. 
Um, and also in terms of the, the theme and the style of our podcast, I don't think anyone has ever um, produced a podcast like this in South Africa. Like, you know, like Beck said, there's music podcasts or the recording of new shows and stuff like that. But but there isn't really narrative storytelling podcasts. And I think in terms of that, we're still new. And South Africa as a whole is uh, our early adopters to, to this style, specifically in South Africa. Yes, it's very much a new or new-ish yeah. habit for South Africans, and I think you're, I think everybody's learning along the way as we go, not least the listeners. And it has to be said that there's a huge amount of competition. I mean, we're, you know, we're looking at social media as the biggest competition. There's, there's so much going on out there. It's, you know, one's got to really come with something that's very strong to make sure that it rises above the noise. And it's also something of a responsibility what you're doing because you're putting South Africa on the map. I mean, if you've got that, you know, a lot of listeners. Uh, in, internationally, that's a wonderful way of promoting the talent that we and the talent and the stories that we have. And do we have stories here in South Africa? But you know, you talk about randomised. How do you talking about the content that you're using? You also have to look at shelf life because one of the wonderful things about podcasts is that they're out there and they can stay out there. So do you think in terms of things that, as you say, not just breaking news, but something that will have a shelf life? for a very long time. Can I just, I just want to come in here with a quick anecdote, Nancy. So I have a New Yorker subscription, as in I get posted the magazines, you know. And because during COVID, everything sort of ground to a halt, I just got this big stack in the mail of about, I don't know, nine New Yorkers or so from November through the last year. In ordinary times, I would find that a treat to catch up on. But the problem with this damn pandemic is that everything is so COVID-19 focused and I cannot face the thought of now reading about COVID from six months ago. I mean, I can't even face reading about it now. And that is exactly how I feel, to be honest, about our first season of Don't Shoot the Messenger now that in particular, when it's focused around a very singular news event like the pandemic, I think it has an even faster expiry date. Sorry, toot back to Haji. Yeah, and I, but I think, you know, like I said, it, at that time, the COVID thing was pertinent, it was important, it was relatable. And, you know, I, I think I'm a little bit less skeptical than Beck is about that first season, because I do think it's got legs, as I like to say, you know, and it's it's longstanding. And I think if podcasts exist in five or 10 years time, people will be interested in, in the type of storytelling we did for, yeah. for that season. But our main, you know, our main focus or, or my main focus, at least, is to always create some, an archive of work that if people don't listen to as soon as it launched, um, they can come back to in one or two months or three years or whatever and still listen to it and still find it relevant and still find it interesting. And so I always say, you know, let's look for something that you're not going to find on Twitter and then it's just going to disappear. Um, until you move on to the next thing. Yes. Let's look for a story that's always going to be interesting and, and nice to listen to, yes. just, you know, good on the with, with an enduring quality, absolutely. Um, Rebecca, your story of the New Yorkers all coming in a great big sclunge, I'm thinking you could have used them to paper the walls. It would be in, infinitely interesting. Uh, talking no, about... that's, no, I, have a friend, I have a friend who prefers to read them at a slight dis- news in general, at a slight distance, because she says it makes her feel less anxious to know that all of this has already happened, which <laughs> I, I can kind of relate to also in these anxiety-inducing times. Yeah, indeed. Um, Haji, just clo- in closing, you know, each episode of your podcast has a sort of time capsule quality it has a sort of an enduring quality 
But quo vadis, because once eventually, if, if we ever do come out of this pandemic, you know, maybe podcasts will reduce. I don't know. I suspect they're here to stay. How do you see, I mean, dare you look forward to seasons four, five and six? Do, are you looking ahead? Um, we are looking ahead. So we're busy working on our 10th episode now and how it works, you know, as per season is 10 episodes. And then we take a two to three month break where we do lots of research, planning, um, try and break down the podcast episodes thematically. And, you know, this is this is what makes it so interesting and so fun is that because we have those three months, we have no idea what's going to happen in the news cycle you know, after those after those three months. So it really does give us time to think of things that are interesting and sort of not be influenced by breaking news, like the Zondo Commission or what's happening mm. with Ace Magashule and whatever. Because it's not that those things are not important, but, I mean, the, this is all information and news that you can get elsewhere. So we have these, these three months that are beautiful but also stressful and very inspirational where we can just think, you know, what are the interesting things that we want to listen to after these after these three months? And I don't think, you know, I don't think the pandemic has anything to do with the longevity or the sustainability of podcasts. I think what we, well, if anything, if what is happening in the world has given people time to experiment with new ways of being creative. And I think it's just going to grow from here. Yeah, indeed. It may have been the catalyst, but it certainly hasn't been the only thing that's uh, given rise to the, the plethora of podcasts. I just have to ask you, uh, firstly, I think you need to tell us how people can listen. How do they have to subscribe? Can they find it anywhere? Give us a, the insight. Um, so they can find it on, first of all, sign up to the Daily Maverick morning newsletter because you will find it immediately there on a Monday morning in your inbox. Second of all, you know, signing up to be a Daily Maverick insider is really good because it kind of helps us with our resources and to pay the bills in general. Um, and then thirdly, just in terms of the podcast itself, you can find it on Spotify, Iono, literally Apple Podcasts, anywhere people do their podcast listening. And obviously, we really, really appreciate, especially on Apple Podcasts, the ratings, the reviews, the feedback, because this is this is a journey for us. I and mean, we're going on this journey with people. And unless they give us that feedback, we can't sort of come together in the middle and have important and and interesting discussions. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned resources there, and I think that all this must be costing you an enormous amount of time and energy, and as young parents, that's no small thing to be giving up. But I just have to ask you, whilst we're talking about insiders, have you had any real bummers, any that that have gone horribly, horribly wrong? Um, You know, I think with any art or with any creative, there's no such thing as being impressed with yourself. That's, (laughs) That's one thing I believe. I think there's always like the blessing is in the disappointment because the disappointment means there's room for development. So I think with every episode, there is a bit of like, oh, you know, we could have done this better. We could have done that better. Um, But I think that is that is a good spirit and a good driving force to have. And obviously there have been episodes, especially in this season, I think the first one or two or three that have fallen, you know, a bit flat. But again, they've been learning experiences and we've taken lessons from that and sort of built on it. And our main objective is is always to just, you know, stay a bit humble and keep our feet on the ground. And, you know, we're not producing for us. We're not like avant-garde jazz musicians who sort of like play for themselves, you know. 
we're playing for a community here. We're playing for an audience, and that is our most important goal or vision. I would add, Nancy, that from my perspective, we did an episode which was one of our most popular, which involved, I'm not going to mention names, it involved interviewing a man, which I had to do, and I had to go and see this person in person, and I found that to be a very unpleasant experience personally, but the episode turned out great, so I suppose it was worth it. So sometimes there's pros and cons. <laughs> Indeed. That sounds like there's a bigger story there. Rebecca Haji, it's been absolutely wonderful and humble you may be and keeping um, making sure that your egos don't get in the way you may certainly be doing, but you're really doing South Africa a huge favour. I think you've raised the bar on podcasts in South Africa enormously. So well done. Keep up what you're doing. And thank you so much for your time in every respect. Blessings. Good luck. Thank you for paving the way for us in yeah, broadcasting. Exactly. I mean, really, we can only run because women like you made the place for us. Made the path possible. Yeah. And, and thank you for your time as well and the opportunity. We really appreciate it. Lovely. Take care. Look after yourselves and your little one. You too. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.